welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hi, my name is Andy Crestadina. I'm one of the co-founders of Orbit Media Studios, which is an award-winning 50-person web development company based here in Chicago. Uh, we build search-optimized and conversion-optimized lead generation sites for mid-market businesses all over the world. Awesome. And a little fun fact, you are going to be like one of like three or four people who I've interviewed and showcased on this podcast who are all based in or around Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, so small world. So to just dive in, uh, tell me a little bit about the most exciting thing you're working on these days, Andy. Oh, I'm, I'm as usual, doing uh, a lot of marketing things that kind of over-index on the really high-touch formats. So we're, the tickets just went on sale for our annual conference. Uh, I've, I've started a networking group that meets tomorrow. Um, and then I'm also recording lots of videos. So these are things that help us stay differentiated by building a community or meeting with people in person and like face-to-face -face stuff, um, which I know that we're going to talk about a bit more. But uh, yeah, those are all fun. Plus AI, having lots of fun experimenting and testing with a testing AI. I just did a webinar about it um, and enjoying uh, seeing what's possible through generative AI. Awesome. You are one of the most productive kind of marketers that I've been following and like working on, on social media for a while. How do you manage to like just stay so productive and so prolific over such a long period of time? Well, some of what you see in my streams are sort of iterations of things that were created maybe first years ago and then improved over time. So I have a weekly LinkedIn newsletter with large audience from my perspective, a lot of subscribers. Uh, that is every other week is something brand new because I write an article every other week. And then every other week is something that I've bringing back from the archive, something that I've freshened up that it was probably none of my LinkedIn audience has seen. I've written 560 articles since 2007. Uh, so that's part of the secret is sort of repurposing or syndication or just bringing things back. Uh, another is to take things and simply move them to other formats. So like I just did this big webinar about AI. It was an hour long. It's got everything you need to know. It's like super formulaic, almost like a really prescriptive framework. Okay, I've done part of that as an article. I need to break that out and do another part as another article. Uh, the part where you train it to write in your brand voice. That should also also be a um, a video. So there's an example of turning a webinar into an article, making a video to support the article. So it's this sort of ecosystem thinking where I'm constantly teaching, presenting, writing, uh, reformatting the book as well. I wrote a book called Content Chemistry. It's in its sixth edition. Uh, that began as sort of repurposed versions of my top content. And it's been rewritten and rewritten over years. So a lot of things that I do might take me 10 hours or 20 hours. They are, in fact, things that I will get uh, lots of lots of traction from in different channels over many years. Yeah, I love that. And that whole, I think you just said the term like ecosystem thinking mm -hmm. is such a smart way to go about it. Um, can you even talk a little bit about like how that approach has evolved? to where it is today, and if you're leveraging AI to help you with any of this as well. Yeah, the opportunities that a brand has in content marketing evolve over time, and young brands probably should do a lot of their content marketing on other people's websites and have very much like an earned first strategy where you pitch 
and maybe two thirds of your articles are actually on other sites. This will grow your search results better by uh, faster by growing your domain authority faster by directly impacting you know, links to your website. Uh, first write four or five super detailed long form, maybe original research pieces on your site if you can. It's never too early to publish some super detailed stuff. And then, uh, so you go on a guest blogging tour for a couple of years, I did. And then um, as time goes on and you start to shift more of your publishing to your own site and start to repurpose things that you've done before, uh, shift to like an, a strategy where you're updating older posts, you know, almost as much as you're writing new posts. So that's an opportunity that comes later after you've been writing for a little while. Uh, and then gradually, as you get strong in a, in a channel, maybe add, you know, experiment by adding another channel to it. You know, we've added video and and YouTube to our 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 strategy. It was kind of something that we doubled down on during COVID and kept going. So yeah, it's um I did a post once with a big graphic that shows like this is what a 15-year-old content strategy looks like, which we can share if you'd like. Um visuals are a huge part of my content program. I'm always I work very hard on on doing draft visuals or screenshots and you know, all these like GA4 things shows you exactly where to click. I had to make all those things visuals. Now with AI, it is, for starters, uh, Jessica, I'll just say that my goal is efficiency. Like I'd be thrilled to get 20% greater efficiency. I'm not trying to quit my job or have it do my job for me. I don't expect to be able to get everything I need magically from one simple prompt. But if you want to get 20% greater efficiency, which is a huge win, right? Like that's a lot. That's like an additional day per week. Uh, then it, you can use it to create simple assets for you to support the thing you've done. Like I wrote an article, got to write the email copy for it. Let's give AI the article and ask it to write a draft email. Great. I clean it up, save me maybe 30, 40% of my time. I made a video, needs a YouTube description. Give it the article that goes with that YouTube video. It writes a description, clean it up, saves me probably 30% of my time. And then also a good thing to do with it is to build an AI version of your audience a persona, an AI-powered persona for your buyer or your subscriber or reader. And then just uh, tell it all about, you know, give it a detailed prompt to get a good persona back. Uh, you don't, in B2B, I don't really care much about gender or income or, you know, a lot of interests. Those Some of that stuff is less useful to me. But buying signals and buying triggers and, you know, information needs and what do you search for? What might you click on? Like these are, I give it very detailed prompts so that I end up with a good persona, which I edit. Now I can go talk to that persona day or night. Now I can ask that persona just what it needs to know before becoming a lead. I can ask that persona what is missing from a certain URL, give it pages and say, what are the key decision criteria that are not on this page? So AI persona driven gap analysis on high conversion sales pages gold mine. <laughs> I can't tell you, like, it's amazing. The insights that come just from minutes, a few minutes of work. So that's basically the evolution of my content strategy and also a bit about how I'm using AI. Yeah. I love that. Similar to you, although I don't think I'm doing it in as much detail yet. Um, using AI to role play on different personas is freaking magic. It's like having the like best quote unquote, somewhat of an intern slash um, hybrid between an intern and like a customer that you can literally just give prompts to and it like kind of spits out exactly, you know, and helps you really refine it is myself, I think. Really powerful, really useful. Yeah, it's sort of like um uh my friend Paul Rotzer, who's the founder of the Marketing AI Institute, uh, he says that 
his best use case for it is at a strategy assistant. I, I do think of it as an intern though, in a lot of cases. And then that's a good, a good starting point as well, because it forces you, it's a reminder that like working with an intern, uh, you have to keep working with it. You have to train it. If you get an intern, you got to train your intern. You got a new artificial intelligence. You got to train your artificial intelligence. So some people almost simultaneously have mortal fear that it's going to replace them, but also harsh judgment at its incompetence. It can't both be incompetent and replace you. <laughs> the truth is somewhere in the middle. If you if you train it assiduously, it will yield good results and and um, some nice efficiency gains. That's kind of what we should be thinking about. That that's probably where our expectations should be of AI in 2023. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always have to say it's like having like an arsenal of interns that don't care what they work on mm-hmm. and will do exactly what you tell them, but you have mm-hmm. to train them and or like give them very specific prompts. <laughs> yep. I, I totally agree with you, Jessica, for sure. Yeah, totally. So on the topic of AI, but shifting gears just a little bit, how do you, let's just say like, what's your view on AI when it comes to, you know, the, your company and like kind of the team as a whole, like, are you actively encouraging people to use AI? How do you like, you know, do you have anyone on your team that maybe is afraid of it? Like what's, how are you kind of like leading the part when it comes to AI Orbit Media Studios? Well, I think AI somehow becomes a sort of a personality test for each of us, because when you see something that is clearly a, a disruptor that will affect so many different categories and, 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 and roles, then there are, you were forced into this moment where you're going to have to decide for yourself, like, do you have a, a fixed mindset or growth mindset? So a lot of my conversations internally, I start there. It's like, you know, the growth mindset, this person is comfortable with change. You know, they want to uh, adapt to new things. They're inspired by, by, by opportunities. The fixed mindset person is poorly suited for this current, this, you know, this current environment. So that's a way to just encourage people to be open-minded about it. Next, I try to make sure that uh, I understand where people are with it now. And just asking open-ended questions I find out that there's basically three kinds of people that I'm talking to. Those who are excited by it and experimenting or curious and experimenting. Those people who are opposed to it and think it's a threat and are actively avoiding usage or or saying um, or being negative about it generally. That's not most people. But then uh, a lot of, probably the majority of people that I talk to are simply waiting. They say, this is gonna be big. I'm going to wait to see what Google does with it, or this is going to be big. Uh, when it shows up in my current productivity tools, I'll give it a try. You know, they're they're really taking no action, and they, you know, probably weeks go by where they never even open it or try it or prompt anything. So, I worry that my uh, my coworkers, my team will will be laggards on something that is in fact a great opportunity. So, separate in your mind labor market impact and you know, the ethics of AI and accuracy and bias and separate in your mind, like the Armageddon and the fear and all the the hype. And just put that in a box and have those conversations at a bar with friends and a cocktail. <laughs> but while you're working, put on that, put on, take that other perspective where here's a tool. It's available to me. It's a productivity tool. How can I use it to be more productive? Or how can I use it to be more comprehensive in my work? 
These are really independent considerations. Whether or not you can be more productive in your day with tools in front of you, that's one question. What is the, you know, is this a global deflationary force with, you know, negative labor market impact? Great. I'll read about that in The Economist or The Atlantic, you know, when I'm not at work. <laughs> so, uh, and I don't know if that's an overly simplistic approach, but I try to separate these in my mind. And when I'm working, I have always tried to be more productive. This is just one more tool that maybe it can help. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, starting with, let's just say, like, as you kind of approach people, and I think you said it before, like, there's not really a lot of hope it's, of trying to convince someone who has a fixed mindset and is already super negative about AI, trying to convince mm -hmm. them, not the best use for time. But for some of these people that you're kind of interacting with, who maybe are waiting and trying to figure out, you know, where it makes sense, but they're like, you know, they kind of see it, maybe they've played around a little bit, they haven't experienced a lot of it. What's some advice that they could, that you've kind of told some of those people to kind of get them a little bit more comfortable with AI and figuring out where it fits into their workflows? First of all, everyone here knows that anyone that wants to experiment with one of these tools can immediately come to me with the company credit card and buy the tool. And I can tell like who's really embraced that by who's coming. Um, you know, there, there are people who were hesitant at first and now trying it and they're asking me for, for the Amex to go sign up. Uh, designers using mid-journey or project managers and uh, copywriters using ChatGPT. Where I learned the most and where I'm able to teach the most is over short calls where we take a use case and simply try it because the there really isn't traditional training required. It's chat. The interface is there is no UX. It's just a pro, it's just a box. So I don't think that it requires training in the normal way. Like I'm doing tons of Google Analytics 4 trainings right now. And it's like, here's where to click, here's where to click. There's nothing like that in ChatGPT. So I'm just showing people things. It's like, hey, look at this. Um, or someone showed me that like, I have a friend who was, uh, they have like, un, they're, they're a social, they're a paid social media agency. Uh, they they have clients that use Unbounce. Uh, they were trying to get their uh, their tracking code to work properly in Unbounce, and it wasn't working. And after hours of struggling with it, they just put the code into ChatGPT, and it told them what was wrong, where the bug was. Great, that's hours saved. No, or I'm showing someone like the um, oh, here's a transcript like this show. If we do a transcript, it's going to be super long, blocky paragraphs of text. It's murderous to convert a audio transcript into a blog post. That's really hard work, but watch. The character limit exceeds ChatGPT. I'm going to chatpdf.com, make it a PDF, upload the transcript, ask it to write a blog post, and it gives me at least the good outline in 10 seconds. So just showing people the little practical applications, because there's infinite use cases, I think that the best way to introduce people to it is just through super quick micro demos where they start to get start where the, to start their imagination going uh, they'll figure out their own their own workflows and their own process i try to never be too prescriptive with how to do anything i just try to give show people tools give them the goal show people tools and then let them do the work the way they like yeah absolutely that's such a good approach of how to do that and kind of encouraging people without being extremely like you know like an extreme micromanager 
I'm not um, a micromanager at all. <laughs> That's the secret of my success is not micromanaging anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I feel like, you know, not micromanaging is also how you can attract a lot of A players on your team. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, in, in retention, they say people don't quit their jobs, they quit their boss. So, you know, it's attracting people, it's keeping people, uh, it's letting people do their best work. It's letting people innovate, but it's, it also doesn't happen just by itself. I mean, you can attract and retain people who have the opportunity to innovate. But if I have someone whom I show everything to and make all the tools available and, you know, give them 10 videos that show exactly how to use GA4 explorations and how to do analysis and how to research keywords and how to use AI to better understand your audience and to track their information needs and, you know, uh, identify influencers to collaborate with and how to reach out to influence. Like, it really, it then takes a kind of a special person, honestly, to uh, to take the initiative and go build on that knowledge um, because I'm not managing people and telling them, now go do this. Uh, there's a lot of cases where I've published things that explain exactly how to do something. And I realize later my team just still doesn't know. They're not even reading it. Yeah. Um, so management is still necessary, <laughs> but I'm not the manager. Yeah, that makes sense. And that actually is a good segue too. Can you talk a little bit more about what the team structure looks like? Sure. So there are two teams, um, formerly two major teams, website optimization. They do ongoing work in the interim between website redesigns. It's a lot of SEO, a lot of conversion optimization and testing and website development, full life cycle, discover, design, develop, deploy. So take that second team, they build websites. On that team, there are uh, three main skill sets, design, programming, and project management. So there's a team of designers with their creative director. There's a team of developers, with the technical director. And there's a team of project managers with the director of project management. So there, So that's the... So each skill set has their own team. That each, those, those team members are managed, their utilization and their capacity and their paid time off and professional development are all managed by their, those individual managers. They range from having uh, 12 direct reports to having uh, six direct reports. There's also a team of copywriters. Um, they, have, they have a manager. There's also a web support team. They have... Uh, uh, they have a manager, although that manager has shared responsibilities. That, um, and then on the website optimization team, it's a little more clear cut because they're sort of like little squads because there aren't you don't need shared resources as much because the work is more predictable. It's monthly recurring, so that team has, you know, each each little squad has their own clients, and each squad has their own roles. There's like a writer, a strategist, uh, a project manager. Uh, and those, so that team is a bit more structured with sort of a, just a different um, cadence to the work. So uh, yeah, but yeah, this is, it's, it's 53 people. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of tools and processes in place and oversight and accountability in place. So it's a, it's a mature business. This is year 22. Yeah. Congrats on making it 22 years. Um, you've done something that only I know a handful of people have done, which is basically hire a CEO to kind of handle a lot of kind of the day-to-day management and ops. Can you talk a little first about like what that decision was like? 
Sure. Well, I think it's one realization is that uh, founders of businesses are not necessarily, maybe even not likely to be uh, the best executive for that business. I think it's super weird that Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO of Facebook. He's a, he was the, the college dorm room hacker. Like, is he an expert manager, like executive? Like that's, it's a very specific skill. And the evolution of business is to go from entrepreneurial, which embraces chaos and innovation, to managerial, which embraces process and, and uh, documentation and consistent performance. So as a business evolves from entrepreneurial to managerial, there are uh, the personality types and the skill sets required evolve a lot. So coming along year 12, maybe year 10, we had a client that did change management consulting. In other words, overseeing the evolution of a business. And, and we that getting to know that client, we realized that they were very good at business advisory type services. So we started to work together with that and then evolved past that to sort of like management consulting services. And even then we were only getting three days a week and we just thought this place is no good without you. Every day you're not here is bad. So uh, it made sense in his family life and his professional life to um, just come over here. And it made huge sense for us because we were all burning out. It was super chaotic. It was a giant unorganized mess. So at that time, Todd took over and he's been the CEO ever since. And he is an expert of business and I am not. He's an expert of management and, uh, and, and overseeing teams and organization design. I'm not good at any of those things. He knows finance, accounting, and you know, he's, business is a skill. It's a specific separate skill. And that was never my skill. So having him has allowed me to have like an extra 20 weeks and 20 hours a week of time. And I use that time to write a book and launch a conference and double my my um, my writing and record videos and launch a webinar and you know all the things that I've been able to do were possible because I have uh, someone who's running the, running the business day to day. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I have a couple of questions to kind of dive in further into this. One. When you knew it was time to hire a CEO, and I think you kind of mentioned when that was first kind of a change management consultant turned into a CEO, what were some of the things that you specifically looked for or thought that you might need? When you look around, you can tell if they're, if you're at an inflection point uh, or if you're, uh, in, in other words, if you and your team are going to burn out. <laughs> That's the kind of inflection point. I mean, I was spending all of my time during the day talking to clients and prospects and all of my time every night writing proposals and uh, creating deliverables. It was not sustainable. It was a two and a half million dollar 20 person business based entirely on my sales and marketing activity. I had, we were paying healthcare and I lived in fear that I had to let somebody go. People were starting families and I was just working continue. There were literally like years where I worked almost continuously and I mean that almost like, you know, sleep, eat, work, that was it. So it takes a lot of effort to build a business. <laughs> There's easier ways to go, but it was not going to continue at that, at that pace for me. And there were people around me who were really not getting the support they needed. The structure and oversight and management wasn't clear. There were just lots of 
If you drew an org chart, there'd be like a ton of dotted lines. Didn't make sense. Business was just chaotic. So I realized at some point in my life, personally, professionally, people with lower pain thresholds are in fact happier. If you get over the martyr complex and the American culture and lots of the ways we do things, it's just like change sooner. <laughs> Don't wait. If it hurts, change your life, do something else, <laughs> you adapt. So uh, I should have done it sooner, but we didn't have the opportunity uh, that we did when, until we met Todd to, to really you know, put an executive in place. But since then it went from 20 people to 53 and revenue grew. And, you know, it's a, it's just a more stable, it's a better business for our clients. It's a better business for our team. I'm just grateful that so many of our team members stuck with us through that because we have people here that saw that whole transition and they're still here. Yeah. That's a testament to having a really, really strong leadership culture within your organization. Um, but going back to, you know, onboarding Todd and having him be the CEO, what was that initial like six months like? And how did you guys kind of like work together to make sure that he was put in a, a position where he would succeed? It's the one role where if you hire for that, the transition's not not necessarily difficult. I mean, he's a change management expert. So I don't remember doing almost anything to get him onboarded. I mean, everyone just breathed a sigh of relief to see him here. <laughs> you know, he's like, uh, you know, we there's foolish things we stopped doing immediately. You know, he got to know everybody. He's a high EQ, high interpersonal person who can be very detail-oriented when necessary. But there were just business functions that we didn't have that he put in place. And then everyone said, oh, good, we finally do that. And there's still stuff like that, honestly. I don't think it's ever done. Every day we look around and say, wow, we're doing a new employee onboarding process is not very uh, rigorous, not detailed or documented. Time to improve that. There's 1 million of those little things in every business, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you actually said something that I think is actually really uncommon, which is even though like bringing on a CEO, they probably do know what to do. There often can be some resistance if you're a founder or a co-founder, like relegating some of that control over to that person. Did you have any of that? And if so, like how did you go about kind of changing your mindset around that? It, your question gets to that point. It's like, what do you feel so emotionally connected to that you will you will fight for if someone else steps on your yard? <laughs> there are, I do have some of those. They have so little overlap with the CEO role that it doesn't come up very much. But there there are times when I think to myself, you know, I'm I am the subject matter expert in this room and I don't feel like I'm being heard enough. Everyone has that feeling, right? It's like, how come I'm not, you know, they're sort of blowing off what I just said. I just told them the right thing to do. And here, you know, why are we still talking about this? Or, you know, you're talking about a challenge. You're struggling with a challenge where I sort of have solved that problem 10 times before. Why don't you, how come no one's asking me about that? But these are moments when really you have to remember that people don't hear you until they've had a chance to talk. Stephen Covey, right? Let people speak, you know, um, no one can listen until they've been heard. And then also there is a, a moment when you really just have to stay focused on outcomes and let go of your own ego to the extent you can. There are still topics where I'm like, okay, anybody who wants to know about that really should not be trying to do it without coming to me first, because I'm going to save them a ton of hours of experimentation because I've already done all that experimentation, but still, um, but 
I get really, really good results. Not, not by abdicating, but by just letting go. You know, if you have senior people and you're paying a bunch of people, basically like six figures total comp to be here all the time, why are you even telling them, why are you even giving them that much input? Like, just give them a goal. They're, people are mature, you know, mid-career professional experts. They'll figure it out. I don't like giving too much input, but I do think that one thing that has to happen is people are so nice sometimes that they don't get, they're not assertive or decisive enough. So one thing that I do try to guide people toward in meetings is like, just simple questions like, okay, what's the goal of this meeting real quick? Okay. Is there an agenda for this meeting? Okay. This meeting's over. Like, what will we, what will he, are we deciding, you know, who's going to take which action items? Because people work together for 12 years. They're all friends. Everyone's being nice. Sometimes it's just these conversations go on a little bit too long. <laughs> Jessica, that's my perspective. It's like, let's get to it and then get off because, you know, my calendar is full and, and some of these internal meetings, I feel like could be more efficient. Absolutely. Kind of a follow-up to that, which is, do you do any sort of like calendar or like meeting audit to figure out when a meeting that, you know, used to be necessary, like internal or with even the clients is no longer necessary? And if so, like, you know, how often are you doing that? And how do you communicate that? Uh, well, Todd has done things where he says, you know, if there's a meeting on your calendar that doesn't have an agenda, you don't have to go. And that made it immediately obvious that everyone that, you know, who's ever running the meeting has an agenda. The agenda meeting, temp the meeting agenda template has in there specific goals and outcomes and like next steps. So there are, uh, there's been lots of meetings I've seen over the years where we stop having the meeting um, or meetings got shorter. So, hey, that meeting was an hour. Not me. That meeting turned into a half an hour meeting. But there is, I think, uh, even though the culture here is like very, very nice and people are very collaborative and helpful to each other and very friendly. But, uh, and, I, and I think that if you're in a meeting and it just turns into small talk or people talking about their kids or summer or the weather or whatever, we have to admit and recognize as well, like that's valuable. People want to work with people. So not every meeting needs to be, you know, super direct, as short as possible, get off the call. But also if I'm in a series of meetings, other people would say it too. I think it's part of our culture. If I'm in a series of meetings and like you're on the, you know, there's really nothing, no decision point at these meetings, that meeting will get questioned. And whoever started that meeting will have to uh, adapt it because I don't think that they'd have support if they're taking other people's time. Everyone knows that everyone's very busy. Yeah, absolutely. And what's your approach to like when to do something asynchronously through like Slack or Loom versus when to hold a meeting? I think that there are, what, what they say in the standard here is that if it's all FYI, then it shouldn't be a meeting. You know, meetings are for making, you know, making a decision. So if a meeting agenda, it just gets to these points where it's like, okay, your update, my update, her update, his update, that shouldn't be a meeting. That should just be communicated in a document somewhere. But there are lots of things end up do becoming meetings. Project, there's a lot of project-based uh, milestones that are meetings. Uh, we just recently added a step to our process where it's a, a checkpoint meeting. So the strategist who sold the project gets back involved to confirm that the, the deliverables will have ROI and that everything's on track. They just literally added just recently, like another extra meeting that goes to, goes to projects. But it's a risk mitigation meeting that's important and it's quick. Um, and a lot of stuff gets documented at that time. And 
we're protecting budgets, you know, protecting our time. But there is also uh, we're moving to Slack. We've been using GChat. We're we're switching to Slack next week, and there's a lot of conversation in Slack. And so uh, I'm I'm not as active in there as most people, and there it's like a tiny social network. Um, but we have to understand that people want occupations that occupy them and they want to work with other people. So you have to uh, be tolerant of a lot of the just chit chat and people, you know, talking about their pets or whatever. That's totally cool. You know, that's why people work in a business is to partly just to have peers and to do, do things together. Yeah, absolutely. And I always have to ask a couple of lightning round questions towards the end of these podcasts. So to start it off, if you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would you choose and why? Oh, wow. That is a fun question. Uh, assuming there's no language barrier, I've got like a, like Aristotle type people would be great. That would just be a really interesting person to kind of do, talk about big picture. I think uh, and probably a cliched answer, Seth Godin. I really like his brain. Um, I guess that's not a historical figure. There's a lot of figures from American history that I'm fascinated by. I think that uh, the more I read about them, the more that um, some of the early sort of people who wrote their names in the Constitution, if I could choose anybody, I might go all the way back and uh, go with like some Greek philosophers because just the just the clarity of those minds. Give me an hour with that guy. Absolutely. If you were to win $100 million tomorrow, what would you spend it on? Oh, I'm very passionate about the environment and planting trees. I think that uh, just there's so many problems that could be solved by a trillion more trees. Uh, probably I would start a, a nonprofit or maybe join another group and make it a program within their nonprofit where I would just hire tons of these kids who don't have much to do in these kind of crappy neighborhoods in Chicago and just have them go door to door to get permission to plant trees, plant thousands of trees in these neighborhoods, make these very green neighborhoods, train them all on, on to be urban arborists. Uh, my dream philanthropy job would be to turn cities into forests and have do all, make it a kind of a job training work program to get just, and then all kinds of good things would happen, right? Flood mitigation, uh, reduced air conditioning costs, property values go up. Uh, people would be feel more invested in their neighborhood, ideally. You know, they'd be a sizable organization, so there'd be lots of job skills taught. That's my dream come true. I plant a lot of trees, but uh, I'm doing it at a kind of a micro scale. I would instantly scale that up. Yeah, I love that. And like, that is like the first time I think I've asked that question to like 10 people. Um, and that's the first time I've ever heard an answer that was that detailed. Oh, man, I got a vision. <laughs> you want to see the plant? Let's do it. Let's do it, Jessica. <laughs> come yeah, to Chicago with plant trees. Um, yeah, but it's been really great chatting with you on the Remote Work Drive podcast, Andy. Where can listeners find you online? Orbitmedia.com is where I write that article every two weeks. Uh, LinkedIn, my LinkedIn newsletter is called Digital Marketing Tips. Uh, you, get, you would get that every week, which is me um, really just finding and posting my best. Uh, the book is called Content Chemistry, the Illustrated Handbook for Content Marketing. You can get it wherever you can find books. And then also uh, just connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, and if you're in Chicago, uh, check out some of our events. We do lots of fun things. We built a great community here and I like to meet people face-to-face -face whenever possible. That's awesome. And just to reiterate, uh, Andy's content on 
their site and also on the newsletter is fire. Um, thank you again. Thank you, Jessica. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.